1: I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Here again for our podcast, Leading from the Front. And our guest today is committed to teaching people how to obliterate obstacles, accelerate innovation, and elevate performance by teaching leaders how to love, learn, and let go. Oh, and, and have fun. A retired U.S. Army officer with 20 years of service has taught at several universities, including the Ohio State University. He's the author of two best selling books and many, many articles on leadership. Please welcome the president of Leader Sites Incorporated, David Veach.
0: How are you doing, David? I am great, Gary. Thank you for having me on. It's a real treat.
1: Looking forward to it. When I look at all that you've written and the things that you've done, I think that we can have quite a conversation today about leadership. Before we do that, though, Give me a little bit about your background and uh, talk about some of your experiences as a leader.
0: Well, you hit the good parts, right? Uh, I spent 20 years in the Army. Uh, I was commissioned out of uh, Western Kentucky University in 1981 as an infantry officer. I commanded troops in Germany. Uh, came back from that, taught ROTC for a few years, and after that got selected for the Acquisition Corps. They sent me off to grad school at Clemson University. Go Tigers! I did that through the end of my career. Actually, I, I was a contracting officer buying missile systems at uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, then I went to Texas and I worked in the uh, Lockheed Martin Vaught Systems plant in Grand Prairie, Texas, where they were making all kinds of different missile systems. And then uh, I got a chance to teach. And so they assigned me to Wright Patterson and I taught in the Air Force Institute of Technology and the Defense Acquisition University for my last assignment. So, when I was teaching ROTC, I got a taste of it, and I said, "Man, I love this teaching yeah, stuff. It, this wow. is great." And I was actually pretty good at it too. So from that point until the end of the career, it was like, "How can I be a better teacher? How can I be a better teacher?" Yeah. Uh, when I got to Wright Patterson, they sent me off to the uh, Air Force has an academic instructor course that is um, three solid weeks long down in Montgomery, Alabama, and that was one of the best courses I've ever been on. And uh, I've been trying to improve this craft of teaching ever since.
1: It's a fun thing to do. Our paths didn't cross, but I was at Huntsville, Alabama, uh, at Officer Basic in 1970s, <laughs> uh, before you. So anyway, yes, uh, both with our Army experience. So what do you remember? It sounds like you remember that moment when you started teaching, you got in front of a class,
0: and you realized, wow, this is really cool, this teaching thing. Yeah. Um, I had been to, you know, we the Army sends us to a lot of classes, right, uh, so I'd been through a lot of mind-numbing, eye-rolling kinds of classes, and I would always find myself saying, you know, I could do so much better than this guy. I could do so much better than this person. Um, and so when I, got to, uh, when I got to Stetson to teach ROTC, it was like, all right, put up or shut up, right? Uh, <laughs> and so, um, but I found that uh, um, I was able to engage with the students, and this was a very small, really liberal kind of university. I was able to connect with these these kids who were both on scholarship and non-scholarship cadets. And I got a chance to teach a couple of special courses that were open to the university. I found I was able to build that rapport. I found I was able to communicate effectively and that they challenged me to continue to learn myself. Um, and I said, I got to keep doing this. So Enjoyed that. So, I always say if you really want to learn something, teach it. That is the only way to really understand something. Uh, I mean, when, when my first commercial teaching job was uh, about six months before I retired uh, from the Army, I, I built a partnership with the University of Kentucky, You had a partnership with Toyota. Uh, they called me asked me to teach a three day program uh, that was part of their lean certification program. So, I, I got to go and teach operations management to a bunch of folks who'd been working in this factory at, at Harley Davidson in York, Pennsylvania for 20, 30 years, you know, and nothing increases that pucker factor like trying to teach a bunch of folks who are experts are already, it, right? Yeah. How to do things better. So it, was, it really challenged me to come up with creative ways to connect.
1: So tell me beyond the, uh, the concern and the apprehension walking into the classroom. We often remember the first time we did that kind of teaching. What do you remember from that, and what did you start to shift
0: and pivot in the way you thought about teaching from that point forward? Uh, the 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 key thing that stuck out about that that first experience, plus the next few, uh, was uh, how utterly inadequate my preparation was Mm. now don't get me wrong i had busted Uh, my ass getting ready for this i mean i was reading and writing notes and building new things i was just going all out on this but you never know what the audience is going to bring to the table you never know what that class is going to be able to contribute to the conversation so um i started learning that that i i need to build frameworks Mm. and i need to tee up these frameworks and then get the audience involved and then they essentially end up teaching themselves. Yeah. And uh, when when that kind of interchange gets going, and you can kind of interject, "Hey, I've also discovered this. Have you guys seen this happen in your workplace?" Uh, it just made it um, so much more vibrant, so much more effective. Yeah,
1: I, I can remember the first management training I did. I. Wouldn't have wanted to have been in that class. It's <laughs> way too content heavy and not enough
0: interactive uh, with, like you say, with the engagement of the students. Well, I learned with the cadets at uh, at Stetson. I learned with them that you got to bring toys to the classroom, and so now almost all of my workshops feature some kind of interactive simulation that's based on toys of some sort. My toy of choice is is Lego bricks. So. Uh, I've got a lot of workshops that use Legos to really illustrate some key principles. and um, i take I take senior executives uh, through strategic alignment and strategic planning by playing with Legos and building a Lego airplane in the most complex simulation that most of them have ever seen, because it really replicates the problems they have in real life real life. That's such a great way to learn. and they 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 learn by doing, they
1: learn all of the. Bits and pieces of of not just strategic planning,
0: but it's about the interaction on the team. It it really is. This ultimately, it's it's a team building kind of activity that teaches those interpersonal relationships, more effective ways to communicate, uh, and uh, the true difference between communicating, cooperating, and true collaborating. Mm. And if I can get people to that point where they collaborate, they consistently. (laughs) set records for this thing. So, uh, collaboration is, is critical for, and, and most folks have come to that realization, but they don't really understand that, uh, when you come up with a solution by yourself and you share that with your team and they agree to do it, that's not collaboration, right? That's cooperation. When you tee up the problem and get them involved in the solution and it's their solution, not yours, you're going to get so much better results. So, well, as
1: I always say, no involvement, no commitment,
0: that's exactly right. Right. So
1: let let's talk about in in your history when you talk about leadership challenges and the challenges that you face and how that fits with the things that you do today, how that uh, has helped you as a to become a better leader. And maybe uh, you know the statutes of limitations may have passed. You could talk about some bad bosses that you might have had in the past and what you learned from them and how you help people become better leaders.
0: Well, let's focus on on what I've learned from leaders in the past for a minute. As I reflect on the skills and abilities of the leaders that that I've had, primarily in the Army up front, because since I got out of the army, it's been much more of a of a study kind of thing instead of an execution thing. The worst bosses that I had in the Army uh, were consistently the ones who were unable to make a decision when a decision needed to be made. Mm. Fortunately, um, that didn't happen very often because I had an awful lot of, of good bosses in the, in the army. Um, the best boss I had, I hated working for him while I was working for him. <laughs> I didn't realize that he was Hates the a best boss. Heart, uh, David. I got it. That's, but that's the God's honest truth, Gary. I swear. Until I figured out what he was doing, I hated working for him. So what did he um, do? Well, um, he was the Brigade S-3 uh, in the 8th Infantry Division, and I was his brigade training officer.
1: So tell tell our guests who don't know the
0: military what the S-3 stands for. S-3 is the operations officer. He is responsible for planning all the war plans and all the training plans to prepare us for those war plans. So we were responsible for that. I was a young captain of course. And and what I really wanted more than anything else was to be a company commander. You know, that's what young captains want to do. I didn't want to be on the staff and uh, he let me know how important staff work was. Hmm. And because I was the brigade training officer, my primary responsibility was preparing the commander's training guidance for the year and for the quarter and so that taught me an awful lot about having to go out and uh, understand what the needs of each one of the battalions was. Now, the brigades, you know, it was a big brigade, About I uh, can't even remember the numbers anymore. It seems like there were like 15,000 people, but we had four battalions. Each one was about 2,000 soldiers. Forward deployed. It was uh, high stakes. It was the height of the Cold War. Uh, yeah. the tip the, we were at the tip of the sword of freedom. My My defensive position as a uh, company commander was right in the middle of the folded gap. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. I was certain to get run over by the Russian hordes. Uh, those are the days. Yeah. Um, but this um, Exciting times. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, um, I would write up what I thought was the best communicating plan you had ever seen in your life. Like these were masterpieces, right? And he would bring it back over and it would like be dripping with all the red ink that was on it. But instead of just you know throwing it on my desk and saying, hey, you screwed this one up. Try it again. He would sit down with me and go through it line by line by line. And instead of just telling me what to write, he would say, go and talk to this person about this piece and go check on this and double check that. And I hated that more than just the red ink, right? Because it was like, you know, I'm all young and excited and ready to go. And this old guy's going to come in here and he's going to sit down and I got to get a lecture on all this crap it just... But what he was doing was like refining my skills, you know, and it, it felt occasionally like, uh, you know, I'd get thrust in the fire. Then I'd get pulled out of the fire and I'd get hammered on a little bit. And then I'd get dipped in the water. Right. <laughs> uh, and it was like, so that's why I hated him. It's John. Why are you After doing this all, me? After all, you knew all the answers already, I know right? everything you already. Know everything it, I'm know. a young captain. I'm indestructible. Yeah. I know everything. And uh, I didn't figure it out until... Um, the, after about 15 iterations of creating this, uh, annual training guidance, the brigade commander releases it. And he comes down, the brigade commander comes down to my office and tells me what a fantastic product I had produced for him. And I found out then that my boss who had made me do all that work over and over and he didn't take credit for any of it, mm. never did. So he set me up for this, this wonderful relationship that I had with the, Um, brigade commander who was ultimately responsible for getting me the job that I really wanted that company command job. Uh, And uh, after that point, you know, I worked lots of long hours for him, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't finish. Don't, don't go home until you get this revision done. Okay. So lots of late nights, lots of weekends, things like that. And if I thought I was working hard before, when I figured out what he was doing, uh, I worked twice as hard because my job then was to make sure that he looked good. And that taught me that his approach was pure servant leadership. Okay. He never told me he loved me. He never gave me a hug. He never really patted me on the back, but he did expect a high level of performance from me. And he coached me to achieve that high level of performance, never abandoned me, provided the support and the encouragement that I need, corrected the behavior along the way. And I will, I will just be forever in in his debt. Um, it was, it was a a wonderful experience. After I was able to reflect mm-hmm. on what happened, I didn't even know to call him a servant leader,
1: and realized all the steps that he took that were absolutely consistent with what you need to be as a leader, up to and including not giving hugs in that's, the army. Let's let's <laughs> that's make sure exactly we clarify right. that: no hugs in the army. So. You know, when I think about it, you're given a task, you're setting a goal, you're given the opportunity to try to complete the work for that goal. And then based on your competency level was coached from the, from that point forward all the way through in order to be able to get out the great product and given all the credit for it. Yes. Sounds like a formula for uh, great leadership
0: to me. (laughs) It is. And it's like the core of, of everything I teach now. And it involves the amount of time that he spent with me but I wasn't the only guy working for him. He did the same thing with all of us. And every one of us turned out to be one much better officers, much better people um, because of the time he invested in us. And we were, it was not like we weren't under time pressure for things. He could have sat in his office and cranked out a lot of this stuff way faster than any of us could have done it. And it would have been just as good, if not better. But instead he understood that his primary responsibility was not getting that work done, his primary responsibility was developing us. And that yeah. changes the attitude for everyone. And if I can get leaders to understand that in their workplace, then it changes the, the dynamic in a workplace for everyone. So talk a little about how you do that now
1: with that learning and, that, and, and the things that you've learned about training and education over the time, uh, what you've learned from that role model and tried to do that yourself. How do you
0: bring that to leaders today? Well, I've kind of pulled it together uh, in this um, – I built this integral leadership model um, that I, I wrote about in – it was the last chapter I wrote in the second book that I wrote, Gary. And, and as the last chapter, it was like kind of rushed and put together. So I really want to get some time to think about it and write it up a little bit better. But uh, it, it involves uh, a melding of of different leadership styles. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's all kinds of leadership styles out there. The four that I've chosen, the one that I've built the core around, was servant leadership. So I've got this core of servant leadership, and the behaviors associated with that. Uh, the primary one is is how do you love somebody, right? And a lot of people get hung up about this word love uh, because they think in terms of uh, physical intimacy and hugs and things like that, and that's not really what it is. Okay, love is a, is a decision that you have to make. Okay, and a leader has to make this decision because. Uh, the, the key thing that you have to do for this is to place the needs of your people above your own. And when you make that decision, that changes the way that you act and interact with those people so that, uh, it puts you in a much more, um, sacrificial kind of mode, right? I'm going to make sure you've got everything you need. I'm going to deny the benefits myself so I can share those with you. Uh, and then in turn, you'll get the response like I had for my brigade operations officer. So the love is is a a pretty critical decision. The next layer around that. Before uh, we leave that, I just want to
1: point out that what you're separating is the separation, the word love, the feeling of love and the action of love. Absolutely. What you're talking about is a loving behavior. It's how we treat each other in a loving way that demonstrates to them the, the trust, the confidence and
0: the need for that human connection so that we can grow together. Absolutely. Yeah. And that uh, that decision that you make is, is critical, though, because if yeah. you decide not to make that decision, it's going to drive a totally separate set of behaviors, and you're going to miss an opportunity um, to really get some energy from a lot of folks. Sure. So,
1: well, there's a great book uh, by the Arbinger Group uh, called "Leadership and Self Deception." Uh, you're familiar with. I am. And being in the box is that one that looks at human beings as objects and does not demonstrate that kind of loving care and uh, that behavior of love. Uh, there's just somebody to get something done. It, that's not a human. It's just get get the work done, and uh, it doesn't work. It's it you know it, it might in the short run. There's certain things that can always work in the short run, but in the long that's run, if you it. don't care. Uh, it's, it's going to create, uh, that disconnect and a lack of
0: trust. So, well, yeah. if you, ha- if you have a lot of people who are looking for other jobs, then you got to look at your own behavior. You got to look at what you're doing. Right. And so we spend a lot of time with leader development in, in self-awareness and how do you, how do you really see, uh, what people are saying? Cause everybody thinks, Hey, I'm doing great. You know? Yeah. We need some leadership development, but it's for all those other guys. Well, not really. <laughs> Right? Yeah. You want to find out how great you are? Ask your followers. Exactly. Yeah. So um, built around this core of servant leadership um, is another layer that I've uh, kind of pulled from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, uh, where he talks about level five leadership. And the thing that, that stood out for me for level five leadership, there, there are three key things that he talks about. One is great personal humility. Mm-hmm. And the other is uh, an iron will. So when it takes a long time to make a decision, but by God, when they make the decision, that is the decision, they're going to support it. They're going to make it work. Uh, But the third thing is this relentless focus on succession. And the only thing that really makes succession planning work is, is that personal connection between leaders and led and the understanding that the leader's job is to develop people to take their job. Mm -hmm. And if leaders have any kind of sense of, of fear or control or need for this control, they tend not to teach people the things they need to do so that they can step into their next role. So we got to break through that, and so the, the the key learning behavior, like like love, was with servant leadership. The key learning behavior for level five leadership is learning. So we got love, we got learn. There's four layers. The third one is uh, I call it short interval leadership, uh, and that term was actually used in a book called Office Kaizen. Uh, that I read a little while ago. It was the first version of Office Kaizen. Um, but but what I see it is uh, you have to, as a leader, create a system that allows you to retain a sense of control that you need for your own well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a human, we got to feel like we're in control of certain things while also letting go and letting your people do the things that they need to do to succeed. Um, typically, if a leader tries to do it all, himself or herself or their self, whatever our pronoun is going to be these days, then they do it poorly or they lose an opportunity to develop somebody. So if we can get leaders to let go, uh, we can make much quicker progress toward lots of things, especially if the leader understands that letting go does not mean abandoning. So the critical thing about letting go is you're going to continue to follow up a lot. And so when we're here remote, like we are right now under COVID-19, that means we're going to have lots and lots of phone calls, lots and lots of FaceTime, and a lot of people on the receiving end of that kind of attention uh, get the distinct feeling that uh, the leader is being a micromanager. And the temptation for the manager is to get in there and make decisions for people whenever they have problems or uh, say, stand aside, let me fix this while I'm here kind of thing. And that is micromanaging the purpose of short interval leadership is to understand the status, go and see, go and talk to people and ask what problems they're experiencing and how you may be able to help them solve that problem. Not, okay, I'll solve that problem for you. I'll fix it. Just do this. Avoid the temptation to do that. And a lot of leaders are very good at that. Uh, Make the decision. Just do this.
1: Well, I think they crossed the line. Like no. you said, I think they crossed the line when they start telling people how to get the work done, not setting the goal, clarifying the expectations on what the outcomes need to be and just letting them go and run with it. Now, the exception of that, of course, is somebody who's incompetent. They that's new. They have to be trained. They have to be taught. But even in that case, the analogy that I like to use is I was, I was doing some coaching with a couple of people once and uh, this project manager was struggling with a particular report on his computer and the other project manager physically pushed him out of the way and said, here, let me show you how to do that. And he put his fingers on the keyboard and I stopped both of them and I said, hold on a second. So that's not helping him. That's doing his work for him. Step away, let him put his fingers back on the keyboard and talk him through it so he can experience the work. Brilliant. And and that's that to me is sometimes when people have clear expectations and clear goals. And they say, that's micromanagement. I'm saying, no, it's not. It's when they start telling you how to do the job, when to do the job, who to do it with. That's training yes. and only necessary if you're incompetent.
0: Yes. And as soon as you reach a level of confidence where you can learn more, you should be given the opportunity to learn more. There you go. Uh, but uh, I, think, I think the enemy of that is time pressure. Okay, We, we let time mm-hmm. Shake us like a paper, right? We let time shake us too much, and one of the one of the skills that we have to build as leaders is is the ability to make time available. And so we got to get much better at making plans for how we're going to execute our day. Mm. Um, and and we don't we don't plan very well, do we, Gary? You know, it's interesting. <laughs> you go back to your original boss, right?
1: When that you hated, and and I think in reflection you said when you realized how much time it took him to spend all the time with the people on his staff that he worked way harder than he could have had to, than he had done it by himself. Absolutely. Because as you said, so I'm going to I'm gonna challenge you on something. Because this idea of servant leadership is something that I, I talk about at times. And I don't like the word servant. Mm-hmm. It's just personal opinion. I like the word service. And the reason is because we in service to another, we provide for them what they can't do for themselves. You know, that's the principle. So I'm going to help them, provide for them what they can't do for themselves. A servant quite often does for others things that they can do for themselves. And I've never been a servant leader, but I've always been a service leader. And in fact, you want people to struggle. You want people to at times fail. And it's it's a, it's a play on words. I recognize that. And I understand the, the intent of what you say, I think is exactly what I'm saying. But I think we need to change the vocabulary to be service leaders. Just my thought.
0: I don't do disagree. I don't disagree with that at all. I, I would classify that as a good challenge. Okay. So lots of challenges come through as hey, I don't agree with what you said. So you should be talking like this. And I'm going to say, screw you, <laughs> yeah. okay. um, but the way you explained it and the, the way you took the time to help me understand where your perspective was, and now I'm thinking, hey, maybe I do. Okay, I, I use the term servant leadership because that's in the literature. Right. right? And I, maybe, maybe we need more literature that talks about service leadership and stuff.
1: I, that's what I'm here for.
0: All right.
1: <laughs> and that's what we're here for with the podcast is to try to shift people's thinking about this. Because I think that for some people, the word servant, when you talk about being a leader and being a servant, and they see that as being one down, that's a challenge for somebody's mindset. And that's not what it's about at all.
0: That's exactly right. A lot of people think of servant leaders also as as doormats. You do everything for people and, and they take advantage of you and things like that. And yeah. When I look at my single case study with uh, Major Goodrich, <laughs> that is not what he did. Yes. Um, so nope. uh, the servant leader, the service leader is the one who kicks your ass when you need it and pats you on the back when you need it. But the most important thing is, is they're the one who understand what you need and they deliver what you need and that's the essence
1: of of effective leadership is, is as we talk about it in our definition is compassionate accountability is the, and, and in fact we most of, are you a parent do
0: you have kids i am yes you are
1: oh that's right i think you and you have grandkids i'm even a
0: grandparent now i've got two grandkids wow, wow.
1: you see so with parenting we we don't call it compassionate accountability we call it tough love yeah it's the same thing Because we care so much about the people that we work with that we're not going to let them fail. And we're going to find ways not just for them to fail this time, but like you talk about from uh, good to great, great leaders, succession planning. Succession is about developing the competencies in others so that they can take over in the future.
0: We're not going to let them fail. Exactly. We can't afford to let them fail.
1: And that's that's the most challenging thing is to in each situation to apportion compassion and accountability in a way that's effective and that's the challenge of
0: leadership. Well that's also a huge part of uh, of self-efficacy. Okay and that's yeah. that's kind of my my little secret sauce my little niche is is i i try to teach leaders how to build self-efficacy in their workforce. Now self-efficacy is a is a type of confidence that is related to the tasks we're asking people to do. So it's yeah. much more specific than something like self-esteem or self-confidence or self-worth. It's very, very task oriented. That's why I kind of latched onto yeah. it. And there are particular things that leaders can do that build this confidence. And what all these studies and self-efficacy show are that people with higher self-efficacy are more likely to improve their own workspace on their own without any direction Than those with low self-efficacy and and if we're not if we don't have people improving their own workspace then we're not making the progress we need to make Mm. another thing that they do uh, is they are much more willing to try new things than people with low self-efficacy and if we don't have people trying new things we're never going to innovate so this is where when you mentioned obliterate obstacles accelerate innovation this is the key to accelerating innovation is building that self-efficacy and then turning these people loose so that they can try all these new things. Then the third key thing for self-efficacy, this is probably the most important piece Gary is when they are trying those new things, if they fail at trying the new things, instead of throwing their hands up and saying, well, Hey, I tried your thing, did not work. I told you it was a bad idea. These folks, folks with high self-efficacy dig in and they keep at it and they persist through that failure until they overcome that obstacle the obliterate the obstacle comes when they find that source of their problem and they solve that problem at its very source and it never comes back so Mm -hmm. do not have to overcome it anymore so the specific things that leaders can actually do um start with building mastery in their workforce and and it's a series of these small inactive mastery experiences so I'm not going to ask you to write the Magna Carta on the first task, Gary. Okay. I might ask you to give me a sentence. Okay. And then if the sentence comes back and it's great, I'm going to tell you it's great. Here's what I like about it. Here's what you did well. Now try a paragraph. And then the paragraph comes back and I'm going to spend time with you. And we might have to rewrite that paragraph a couple times to get it right. And, When you're ready, I'm going to give you a page, then I'm going to give you a chapter, then I'm going to give you a section, then I'm going to give you the whole book. Okay, So I'm not going to throw you to the wolves from the very start. And that takes time for leaders. So it's the series of inactive mastery experiences. And what I call them, it starts with a challenge. They have to be able to want to achieve the challenge, which is why I said, made the distinction between a good challenge and a bad challenge. A good challenge is one that people want to pursue. So I want to learn more about service leadership and write more about service leadership and how that can have an impact on, on your listeners and the readers. Um, so I'm going to take that challenge. I'm going to run with it until my skills are improved. And then I'm going to call you back and say, okay, Gary, what's the next challenge? Right? Yep. So, so this series of small challenges that we can win, and, but when we lay that challenge out, the next thing we have to do is help them develop a way to achieve that challenge. Right? So it's not like go write the paragraph. Uh, you're on your own. It's no, I'm going to go write the paragraph. We're going to do this together. And we're building this process that says if you follow this process with practice, you'll become an expert at this. And so there's this repetition piece that has to be in there, too. But uh, like everybody says, you don't get to be an expert with just practice. It has to be proper practice. And you have to have feedback on that practice. And that's where that compassionate accountability comes into play, is I have to give you feedback, positive and negative, whether you like it or not. I've got to take the time to build that relationship with you so I can share that with you to build that expertise. And there's some other things we do with uh, with organizational structures and things that also help build that confidence. But if I want everybody in my workplace to come to work and try new things and improve their own workspace and persist through failure – that's the key to doing it it's that tiny step you take when i give you that first challenge
1: well and i find it interesting we've come full circle here uh david and and starting to talk about the boss that you hate to what referring back to that and what you've learned through your career and now what you do for people are all of those lessons that he role modeled at that time that you hated and the fact that you had that emotional response to it is really awesome because it got locked into your psyche and now in reflection you can go back and say that was really cool (laughs) what he did he followed all these leadership steps so i think that we could go on and on and on for a very long time and uh as we get to know each other better i look forward to um sharing more podcasts with my newest friend uh david veach uh a fellow army veteran and uh Look forward to uh, having uh, so many more conversations on service leadership. I've got some stories on indecisiveness and how how important that stuff is. And uh, just the fact that the number one skill of a leader is to be a coach and really a coach is is a teacher. And that's where you started. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, David, thank you so much uh, for being on the show and uh, sharing some really great insights into leadership and in your your career. And uh, I, I think that I can honestly say that I want to have you back on to this uh, podcast again, if you would be willing.
0: I would be delighted, Gary. Thanks a lot. I've really enjoyed this.
1: Well, thanks. We have that on recording that he said he, he said. <laughs> yes, I, I love that. So we'll hold you accountable to it. I am Dr. Gary making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And this is Leading from the Front. Thank you.
0: Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com.
1: S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S
0: dot Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit
1: peterkatz.com.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.